I'll be reading from Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 through 8. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good, a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace, for God is my witness. How greatly I long for you all with affection of Jesus Christ. Good morning. It is, as always, very good to have you here this morning. We're thankful for your presence, and we're thankful for yet another opportunity to give glory to our Heavenly Father. He is certainly worthy of the very best that we have to offer. If you're there in the book of Philippians, that's what we'll study this morning. We'll take a look at these first 11 verses in the chapter, and we'll focus on our title this morning, Paul's Prayer for Christian Growth. We have been kind of uh, focusing on sanctification, and we're talking about maturation in, the, in our faith and as we grow closer to our Lord and hopefully grow more and more to be like Him. I could only hope that at this point in your walk with the Lord that you appreciate how important that is, number one, and how ultimately you are responsible for that. That if you will grow closer to God, if you will become more and more like Jesus, you will be the one largely doing that. You will be investing the time, the energy, the effort, the prayers, the commitment, the study, the learning. I hope that you appreciate you can't really outsource that to the church, that ultimately the church becomes one more vehicle God has given to help you in that process but not a replacement for that process. And I hope that you appreciate that's every day of your life, and that is the purpose of our lives. And so we'll talk this morning about Paul praying about that very thing for the Philippian brethren. Tonight, if you come back, we'll talk about the application to that. We simply won't have time to do both. And so I invite you back for the application of Paul's prayer to us but this morning, we'll focus on what exactly he prayed and why he prayed it. There are several things that stand out in these first 11 verses. We'll note a few of them by way of introduction. The Apostle Paul loved the Philippian church, and he states that. He makes them aware of that. There are several reasons for his love for them. Some are stated right here in chapter 1. For instance, in verses 3 through 5, Paul says he is thankful for them and he prays for them because they were fellow laborers. He will say they participated with him in the gospel, and for that he loved them and prayed for them. Number two, he will say that they were supporters of his. Over in chapter 4 of this book, verses 15 and 16, he will say, you know, you Philippians communicated with me. You gave to me. You supported me. You gave me money to continue the ministry. He says, you did that when no one else did. You were among the first to do it, and you did it when no one else was doing it. He says, even in Thessalonica, you did that for me. The third reason, he says, or notes here, is that 
They were growing in the Lord. And he says in verse number six, I am confident that he who has begun a good work in you, he will complete it. Paul expressed that love and those thoughts he had for them. In fact, for him, it just made sense given the nature of the relationship. Notice verse number seven. He says, for it's only right. It only makes sense that I would feel this way about you. It's only right for me to feel this way about you. And then he says, because I have you in my heart. I have you in my heart since both by my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me. Fellowship, we share in this, and it's only right for me to feel this way. I have you in my heart. In fact, in verse number eight, he says, God is witness. God knows how I feel about you, how I long for you with all the affections of Christ Jesus. You can hear as you just read through the book the closeness and the heart and the connection that Paul has with the Philippian brethren. Paul's love for them moved him to pray for them. In chapter 1, verse 3 and verse number 4, Paul says, I thank my God always in my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy at my every remembrance for you all. In chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, where we'll focus this morning, he prayed for their continued spiritual growth. Let's note, at least from here, a few lessons that are noteworthy from the things already discussed. Number one, there is a lesson here that says, if you love someone, tell them. Paul did. Paul says, I long for you. I have you in my heart. Wouldn't you be encouraged if a brother or sister told you that? They just met you out in the foyer. I know, given the, the complexities and challenges of your life, wouldn't it be great to be met in the foyer with somebody saying, I'm long for you. I pray for you. I think of you. I have you in my heart. Wouldn't that feel good? Wouldn't it equally feel good if they said, I'm praying for you? When I go to my Father in prayer, I have you on my mind. Your well-being, your continued growth, your maturation, I'm praying for you. You know what we could do is we could tell each other, shh, don't tell anybody that we could all do that for each other. Wouldn't it be great if instead of examining each other, we said, I'm praying for you? Instead of critiquing each other, we said, I think about you all the time and I long for you in my heart. Don't just say yes. After we get done this morning, meet somebody and tell them something. <laughs> Paul's prayer. Let's talk about Paul's prayer. All of that takes us down to about verse number nine, and we'll notice three things about Paul's prayer. Number one, Paul's prayer for these brethren was personal. He's praying about spiritual growth and maturation. He includes that in his prayer. He says, when I'm praying for you always, this is part of my prayer. Paul is going to list three things that are involved in spiritual growth, three tools, if you will, building blocks. How do I grow? What do I need? We talk about it a lot. Paul informs us here, here's what you need if you're going to grow. He says, love, knowledge, and discernment. He's going to talk about love. In fact, I would urge that love is a huge topic in Scripture. If you start reading the Bible and just keep reading, it won't be long before you run into love. And the reason it won't be long is because if you read the Bible, you'll run into God. In 1 John chapter 4 and verse number 6 through 8, John says, God is love. 
which means when you're reading Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God, you're reading love. In fact, John 3, 16, God so loved the world, gave his only begotten son. God is love. And so love takes up a huge topic in Scripture. But not only that, Christ is love. In fact, Christ gave the greatest love. He said it himself in John chapter 15 and verse 13, greater love hath no man than this. There's nothing greater than this. Man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, he says, if you keep my commandments. But if you take that and you put it over in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, he will say that he didn't just love his friends, he loved his enemies. And while we were yet sinners without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly because God commended his love toward us when we were in that state. In 1 Corinthians 13, that great chapter on love, Paul concludes that chapter by saying, and now abide in faith, hope, charity, these three, the greatest of these is love. There are four areas of love in this book and throughout the Bible. One of those, and maybe first and foremost always, is love for God and Christ. Paul mentions them in the opening of the book. Notice verse 1 and verse number 2. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints, notice what they are. They're saints. This means these people have already obeyed the gospel. These people have already evidenced and committed their love for God in becoming Christians. Paul says they're saints. He says the saints in Christ Jesus who have Philippi with the, with the, including the overseas and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There is also then a love for truth. It's necessary. He talks about that. He's going to talk frequently about their participation in the gospel and about that which they obeyed and then supported and then participated in. It's necessary to have a love for the truth. reason is rather simple. God's Word is truth. Jesus said, if you continue in my Word, and you're my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. John 17, 17, he prays, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy Word is truth. It's necessary to love the truth. Paul talks about those who did not receive a love of the truth being deluded and ultimately condemned for not loving the truth. And then we need to love self. Paul is going to talk frequently about them. In fact, verse number one, chapter one and verse number three, he says, I thank my God always remembrance of you. And in verse number six, he says, he has begun a good work, shall continue it in you. And in verse number uh, seven and eight, he keeps talking about them. He says, I love you. You need to love yourself, he says. And then he talks about his love for them or love for others. We need to have that love too. Four areas of love. He loved them. Paul's point with regard to this prayer, it begins with love. Notice verse number nine. After all of this information, he says, and this I pray. I pray that your love may abound still more and more. They already have love. Love for God, love for Christ, love for self, love for others. They love Paul. They love Epaphroditus. They love the truth. They support it. They participate in it. They help with it. They give of their means. They love, Paul says, I want your love to abound more and more. And then he says two other things. He says in knowledge, in real knowledge, there is then a connection between love and knowledge, love abounding in knowledge. I said love is a huge topic in Scripture, and it is, but so too is knowledge. 
Knowledge takes up in a tremendous amount of Scripture. In fact, the whole book ultimately resolves around the subject of knowledge. And so there's teaching and learning. There's knowing and doing. And it's emphasized over and over and over again that we must know. Jesus said in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. That's what Christianity is all about. It's about learning. Learning what? Learning who? It's learning Jesus. That's what it's about. Jesus, in fact, would say in John 6, 44 and 45, in order to come, he says, written in the prophets, they shall all be taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. You can see then that it's hearing and it's learning that leads you to Jesus, leads you to God. Paul would say, in fact, 2 Timothy 2, 15 through 19, he would say, give diligence to do it. Give diligence to know. In fact, I'm working on a sermon in my mind. I haven't written it, but it's in there, and I'm beginning the processes of working on it. And that's the tentative title, due diligence. Paul says, give diligence to do what? To know. Give diligence. King James says study. Sometimes gives people the wrong idea. They think in terms of study, I need to sit down, I need to have a desk, I need to open it, I need to look at the book, and I need to focus and read the Bible for eight hours. No, that's not what he's saying. He is saying give diligence to know. Wear yourself out to know. It's not a one time, two or three hours at a desk. It's every day, all day. I don't know that which I need to know, and I'm going to find it out. That's knowledge. That's the pursuit. Paul says, I want your love to abound. Yes, in all knowledge. Peter would emphasize it in his book. Peter would say we need the sensitive milk of the Word in order to grow thereby. He would say in 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in grace and in knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. When he talks about those things that are to be added to our faith, one of them is knowledge. Love abounds in knowledge. Love is connected to knowing. But then the third thing in verse number 9 is discernment. What does that mean? It means perception, not only by the senses, but by the intellect. See, I know and now I can discern. Cognition, judgment, that's the idea. Synonyms include words like insight, wisdom, and perceptivity. It's because I know something that now I'm going to judge and decide and distinguish this, not that. That's Paul's prayer. That's spiritual growth. That's maturation. That's what we're all involved in trying to do and become. Paul says three things in verse number nine, that your love abounds. What are you saying, Paul? This is my prayer for you. I am praying for you that your love abounds more and more in real knowledge with all discernment. That's the prayer. Knowing God's character, his, his nature, his, the mystery, knowing Christ, his person, redemption, knowing and perceiving and discerning all things relative to life and godliness, Peter would say. This is the building blocks. This is the stuff of spiritual growth and sanctification. Learning God and his word, love abounding, not just, just learning, but then doing. That's the discerning piece. 
Take a book like Proverbs chapter 1, and, and that's what the proverb writer says. It's about wisdom. It's about discerning. It's about knowing. And then you read through that book, and you hear all of these different areas of life where you're applying discernment. And it covers everything. If you can name it, it's covered. If you're talking about money, it's in there. If you're talking about relationships, it's in there. If you're talking about people to avoid and people to trust and people to, to not trust and, and this thing and that thing and work, it's in there. What do you need? You need this discernment. What's necessary in order to get it? You need humility. You don't need light. You need humility. <laughs> You need humility. That's exactly how our Lord opens Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You need that kind of disposition to get to this. You also need an, a person, a heart that's ready and willing to receive instruction. That is, again, what the proverb writer says. He talks about the foolish and the wise and how the foolish hate knowledge and instruction, but the wise man will hear and learn and increase in learning. There's the difference between those two individuals. One can be taught and instructed, and the other, I have no place for learning, no place for knowledge. You can't tell me anything. And you need a pure heart. You need a heart where the seed can be planted and then grow, you can see then some things that would work against that. Pride would work against that. You could see some things that would work against that. Selfishness would work against that. And you could go on and on, noting the things that's going to derail this process. But if you have it, and you're on your way. Paul says, this is my prayer for you. It's personal. I want this for you. Every individual Christian. Paul says, I want this from you, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Number two, Paul's prayer is purposeful. There's a reason to it. There's a, a method behind the madness. There's a rhyme and a reason behind. Why would I pray that for you? Notice verse number 10. Paul says, so that, so that you may approve what is excellent? There's purpose to it. Spiritual maturation has an end, a goal, a purpose in mind, a method to it. It's not so you can know all the answers to difficult questions. That's not it. It's not so you can prove your position right and others are wrong. It's not so you can be puffed up and swole up with how much you know. Paul warns that knowledge puffs up. It certainly can have that kind of connotation and effect, that with the wrong heart and with a lot of knowledge, you could be puffed up in your knowing. All of that knowing could be good in the wrong heart and with the wrong disposition, not so much. It's not so everybody can call you up when they have a tough question. They say, I know somebody who knows. Let's call so-and-so. He has the answer. She studies her Bible. Let's, well, that's not the purpose. It's not so God will save you. I would want you to mistake that the reason for this spiritual growth is in order to be saved. Well, why not? Because they're already saved. You notice how the book opened? Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints. They are saved. 
So he's not writing to tell them how to be saved. They are already saved. What he's writing then is to tell them how to mature, how to grow, how to be sanctified. Now that you have been set apart, grow in grace and knowledge. Doesn't matter which writer talks about it. They all talk about it from that position. Because you're saved, be holy. That's the way Peter says it. Because you're saved, now grow. You're a saint. As a result of that, grow in knowledge and love and discernment. To what end? He says, so that you may approve. The word means to test, examine, to scrutinize, to see whether or not a thing is genuine or not. Listen to that. To see whether or not a thing is genuine. There's going to be multiple scenarios where you're going to have to decide. Paul says, okay, good. Just as they purify metals and they want to see, is it real or is it fake? You need to have that same ability to do that with doctrines and ideologies and ideas and, and things that people are You need to scrutinize to see whether or not it's genuine. Christians have to have this ability. They have to be the, 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 the people who can test and approve. That's the way John would say it, try the spirits to see whether or not they're of God. Christians have to be then the most reasonable, rational people in the world. That's the charge, to have this capacity, this ability to approve. The word reasonable does not mean agreeable. Sometimes people say, well, you just need to be reasonable. And by that, they mean you need to agree with everything I say. Well, that's not what that means. The word reasonable does not mean compliant. You need to be reasonable. You're always bucking the system. Well, if, if you're doing wrong, I can't agree. I'm not going to comply. That would be unreasonable. Reasonable does not mean be submissive. It's not what it means. No, the word reasonable means capable of reasoning, rational, governed by or being in accordance with reason or sound thinking, being within the bounds of common sense, biblically speaking, doing exactly what Paul says here, approving, deciding, judging, discerning. That's the idea. Christians cannot afford to be unreasonable irrational, illogical people. We can't afford that. And part of the reason for that, other than it will ultimately harm your own life individually, it will do that. If you've ever tried to reason with an unreasonable person, you know how unreasonable that is. I just made that up on the fly. Man, <laughs> it just happened. I didn't have that one this morning. But if you've ever tried it, Christians can't afford to be this way. One of the reasons, and maybe the major reason stated in the New Testament, is going to be at the exact same time the apostles and prophets were preaching, false prophets and false apostles were preaching. And what the saints were being inundated with was two bodies of information. The apostle Paul would come to town and he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. False teachers would follow behind him and they would teach something else. And the Christians would be left to decide which one is right. And then Paul would often write back letters to them and say, hey, that's not what we taught you. 
That's wrong, and here's why, which is why when you read the New Testament epistles, there's so much reference to the Old Testament. Because the apostles will say, listen, we know what we taught you was right. Here's the evidence. Here's what Moses meant. Here's what Noah did. Here's what, and they just walk through the Old Testament and say, here's what it means. Here's what it means. Here's what it means. And ultimately, it ended in Christ, the very one they kept rejecting. But the people were left, even in this book. People talk about the Philippian church being so sound and not having any issues. No, they had challenges too. And even in this very book, Paul says there are false teachers. In fact, chapter 1, verses 15 to 17, he says there are some preaching Christ out of envy and strife. In chapter 3, in verse number 1, Paul says, listen, it's not a problem for me to write the same thing to you, but in verse 2, he says, beware of dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the concision. In chapter 3, and verse number 18, he says, For many walk of whom I have often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame. They set their minds on earthly things. Very often what we're tempted to do is read the New Testament and read about false teachers and immediately jump to denominationalism in the world. You should know, when Paul penned those words, there were no denominations. When Paul penned those words, he didn't have philosophers in mind. When Paul penned those words, he had people who were in the church teaching things that were contrary to Christ. In fact, he specifically says, they are enemies of the cross, whose glory is in their shame. They mind earthly things. Read through your New Testament and listen to Paul talk about it, Peter talk about it, Jude talk about it, John talk about it over and over and over again. They're referencing people inside of the body teaching error. There was a time we could have said, well, yeah, that stuff's in the world. Oh, yeah. But you do appreciate that there's people right now in the Lord's church teaching things that are contrary to Scripture. And it would be one thing if that's where it stopped. But it doesn't stop behind the pulpit. Nope, they preach it to people just like you. And what happens? Oftentimes, people just like yourselves, because of a lack of discernment and knowledge, they follow along. And then there are things being taught and preached we didn't use to teach and preach. Now, nothing has changed about the Bible. So if we ever had it right, it's still right. If we ever had it wrong, it's still wrong. But it certainly hasn't changed. But people have. Paul says, I'm praying for you. Because if you follow error, Galatians, brethren, if you follow error, you'll be condemned. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. It's hard to say that much plainer. The Galatian souls were at stake because of false teachers and a lack of discernment on their part. Chapter 3 and verse number 1 of that book, O foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? before whose eyes Christ has been evidently set forth crucified among you. There is what you knew to be true, and now you're believing something else. And chapter 1, verses 6 through 9 of Galatians, I marvel. You're so soon removed from him that called you unto the grace of Christ, unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you. What would have prevented the troubling? The ability to approve, the ability to examine and test. That's what he means, that you may approve 
test, examine, scrutinize. What, Paul? Things that are excellent. Thayer says with regards to this word, excellent it is to distinguish between good and evil, lawful and unlawful, to approve of things that excel or differ one from another. It is, he says impersonally, to make a difference in matters of importance. Is this importance or is it not? What would I use to decide that? Discernment. I'd have to decide whether or not this is important or that is important. Are there some things that's not important but are touched on in Scripture? Sure. And so you read a passage like Romans chapter 14 where Paul makes it abundantly clear that the things here, there is a sense in which one man can be convinced of things and another man can be convinced of another thing. And Paul will say by inspiration, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Are there some things like that? Yes. I'd have to know whether or not they're that or as Jude says in Jude verse number three, beloved, when I wrote unto you of the common, say was, I wrote unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you that you should earnestly contend for the faith. Is this a matter for which I should earnestly contend, or is this an indifferent matter? What do I use to decide? Discernment. I'm going to have to scrutinize. I'm going to have to judge. I'm going to have to weigh. I'm going to have to figure that out. How do I do that? Knowledge. Knowledge is going to help me with that. Who's going to give it to me? Well, the reason we're in the, the, the situation we're in is because far too many Christians listen to preachers. Tell them the answer. And if that's what you perceive Christianity to be, then friends, you're going to be challenged indeed because the sum total of your belief system will be the latest preacher that you heard. And that's no way to try to live with the Lord. Paul's prayer is that your love would abound in knowledge and discernment so that you could approve the things that are excellent. But that's not all he says. The point of Paul's prayer is at the end of verse number 10, where he says, and so be pure, that you may be pure and blameless. The idea of pure, sincere, that which being viewed in the sunshine is found clear and pure, is what Thayer says, spotless, sincere. That's the idea. That you could have a pure mind, a sincere heart, and be found spotless before God. That's the idea. Peter says the same thing in 2 Peter 3 and verse number 1, where he talks about stirring them up in their sincere mind. Paul would mention the mind in Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 5, a very specific one. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We need to have the mind of God, a pure mind. He says then, and so be blameless. Some renderings uh, might say without reproach or, or, or something to that effect. That, that's the idea. It's not sinless. It's blameless. That is, no charge that's made could be true, could stick by actual fact. Jesus, if you, if you take the word blameless to mean you can't be blamed, well, then Jesus wouldn't be blamed because the Pharisees blamed him for everything. It's just that none of it was true. That's the idea. None of it was true. No blame they levied against the Lord was accurate. 
The idea is not leading others into sin by way of example or not stumbling into sin one's self. Not troubled by a consciousness of sin that you would be blameless. Your own heart and mind would be pure. You would have a calmness and a peace, to use Paul's language later in the book. The peace of God shall keep your heart guarded. We're not talking about sinless perfection. We never are. We're not even talking about when Christians practice 1 John 1, 7, and they walk in the light as he is in the light, and they stumble in the light, and the blood of Jesus keeps cleansing. We're not talking about that. No, what he's talking about is the idea that sometimes it gets into the hearts and minds of Christians that they have a sin issue, a sin they won't let go of. It's not an occasional stumble. They are actually doing this thing. The result of living like that is you do not have a pure mind. The result of living with a known sin that you won't let go is you are not blameless. You do have a troubled consciousness of sin. Paul says, I, listen, you won't. You won't have that if, he, he, he says, if your love abounds in, in knowledge and discernment, and if you approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless. Paul ends that section by that thought by saying, until the day of Christ. What living the way Paul describes will produce is that you'll be prepared for the Lord's coming. The day of Christ in the New Testament is, is going to have at least two different connotations to it. Uh, one of them is going to be the destruction of Jerusalem. That, and, and maybe for the saints hearing and receiving the letters in the first century, maybe that's always in the immediate future. That, that God, Christ is going to come. And the reason you need to stay faithful and be faithful is one day this is going to be destroyed. Hebrews chapter 12, we receive in a kingdom. He says, but the kingdom is going, that one which is and remains is going to be shaken. It's going to be troubled. That kingdom, don't fight for Jerusalem. Don't try to defend it. No, flee, Matthew 24. But there also is the idea of our Lord's coming again. The second time. And Paul's prayer is that the sanctified life of God's children leads to prepare children for the day of the Lord. Whenever the Lord comes, these people, this person will be prepared until the day of the Lord. The last point is in verse number 11, and that is that Paul's prayer was, was practical. There was a goal in mind, an end, a practicality to it all. He will say, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. When we're talking about sanctification, we're talking about maturation. We're talking about maturity. That's the idea. Complete. You will be filled. You will be complete. To fill to the top, not wanting. Feel to the brim. You will be exactly what God wants you to be. You will start that journey as a babe or like a babe in Peter, 1 Peter 2, 2, and you will grow on to be a full-grown spiritual person. To use the language in Ephesians 4, he says, not tossed about like children with every wind of doctrine. Why? 
Why? Because you will have this ability to discern with the fruit of righteousness, he says. This is the idea of integrity, virtue, purity of life, rightness, correctness of thinking, feeling, and acting. And ultimately, it's tied and connected to Christ. Everything is. Jesus says, I am the vine, my father is the husbandman, and you are the branches. Abide in me. There is in every area of Christianity a connectedness to Jesus, a dependency on Jesus, a reliance on Jesus, a submissiveness to Jesus, a following after Jesus, of a becoming like Jesus. That's the point. Paul says this is done through Christ, and because it is, there's always the same goal doesn't matter where we start, we will always end at the same place. Notice how verse 11 ends. To the glory and praise of God. Why exactly are you trying to grow? Why exactly are you trying to get better? Why are you actually trying to become more and more like Jesus? Why? What's your end goal? What's your point? Paul says, it's to the glory of God. It's to the glory and praise of God. The purpose of maturation, the point of completeness, God is glorified in us, and God is praised for what he has done in us. Paul prayed for the brethren to grow, to become complete. His prayer was very specific. Verse number 9, he says, abound in love knowing or knowledge and discernment. The reason for that is in order that you may be able to decide things that make a difference, that actually matter. And so by doing that, you will be pure, not stumbling or causing others to stumble. And you will be prepared to meet Jesus. And through all of that, you will be made complete, overflowing, mature in integrity, thinking, feeling, and acting like Jesus, that will be accomplished through Christ, and that will be to the glory and praise of God. Invite you back tonight so that we can make application of that prayer and what those things mean practically as we go out into the world and try to live those things out and, and see why every one of us absolutely needs the things for which Paul prayed for the Philippian brethren. If you're not a Christian this morning, we invite you to become one. Jesus Christ died for your sins and for mine and for the whole world. And the gospel is the good news that there is a way out. I don't know about you, but I, I, when you watch television, when you watch movies and you listen to songs, and I suppose it's always been this way, but there seems to be a con consistent theme and that is that man is down, and that, that people are struggling, that life appears to have no meaning and significance, and that none of it seems to matter, and none of it is important, and whatever you want, it just goes on and on and on, and just lends itself down this, this dire and downward trend. If you listen to it long enough and watch it long enough, it won't be long before you'll be wondering about your own life, and you'll be trying to say, I identify with that. And that's why I feel the way, and pretty soon you'll be down and out. Let me ask you a question. What does this phrase mean to you? Good news.
That's good news. From where? Heaven. <laughs> it's good news from heaven for earth. Jesus came. Peace on earth. Goodwill toward men. Jesus came. And so there's hope and there's help. Jesus came. And so there is meaning and purpose and fulfillment. And Jesus came. So there is peace and love and harmony and goodness in the world. Perish the thought that God's people who have Jesus don't live and know that Jesus came. And friends, if you're outside of Christ, we invite you to come in out of the rain. We can't stop the rain from falling, but your house sure will stand. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, he is. You change your heart and your mind. Learn something new and repent. Learn that Jesus loves you. Learn that God loves you. Learn that you matter. Learn that the very heads on your head are numbered. Learn that there is a way to live that glorifies God and a home prepared for you in eternity. And confess the name of Jesus Christ. And be baptized in water for the forgiveness of your sins. And friends, if you know these things, pray you're living them. Tell you what, maybe we should take the prayer list and pray for each other. We should tell each other we love you. We should tell each other you're on my mind. We should tell you I'm praying for you and for your growth, for your love to abound in knowledge and all discernment. May we help and bless each other. Jesus came. If we can help you in any way, we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.